0: Our lives have been turned upside down by this pandemic, but we're gonna
1: get through this. No peace! No justice! No peace! Brianna Taylor!
2: Brianna Taylor! We're gonna know how to be resilient and how to bounce back and how to adapt to whatever life is gonna throw at us.
1: Let's use this as an opportunity to
0: create a system that's better than the one that we've been in for so long.
2: We're just trying to think outside of the box for a tough time like this.
1: You can't get this wrong because it's never been done before. All you can do is try, you make a mistake, you fix the mistake, you move forward. That's where we are. There's an opportunity here
0: to change how we do education. So how do we change education? That big question doesn't have easy answers. But now's the time to dig in, to listen to each other and to work on solutions. Because the decisions we are making right now are already determining our future. Plug into GA's new podcast, Bright Future, Start Now. We'll talk with real changemakers about real issues. And we need you to be a part of the conversation.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Kelly Graves, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Kellen Foundation.
1: And I'm Cyril Jefferson, member of High Point City Council and Principal Consultant at Change Often LLC.
2: And I'm Winston McGregor, the president of
0: GEA and a member of the Guilford County Board. So it's become a cliche, really, to say it's been a year. We've dealt with historic pandemic, long overdue attention on and what even I would call a reckoning with deeply entrenched racial inequities in America. We've had these intense political dynamics. It's kind of a perfect storm for stress and anxiety. And the events in the current climate can spark and compound trauma for students and for adults. And I think we've always had a concern about trauma in kids, especially, and yet we don't really understand it very well, most of us. The last two decades of neuroscience have certainly taught us so much about how the brain works and how we respond to events and about stress and trauma. And there's a great deal of research, I think, that's still unfolding. What we know for sure is that trauma has a big impact, teaching and learning on our kids. And really, that's what we want to focus on today with you all in this vast field of trauma. And I'm really interested in the learning we can glean today from both of you and your work. So I do want to dive in, but I want to start a little bit with just your story. What led you to focus on this impact of trauma on students in particular?
1: I've worked in education and in nonprofit work for years, which actually resulted in the work I do now as a public servant on city council, and also the work that our firm does with many of our partner clients come to learn that students, what they do, their past experiences are all connected. right? And they're all, uh, I don't want to use the term victims, but they're byproducts of their environment. And being yeah. an educator, someone who's been passionate about working with these students to help them believe in something that they probably would have thought was impossible to learn we always knew that the environment had a big impact, but to really learn about the trauma that comes from it, I'm proud to say I've worked with some really resilient kids, but I often wonder about those who maybe the way they show up doesn't seem so resilient, and it manifests in some ways that are, that are pretty alarming. So.
0: You said so much good stuff there, and I want to come back to pieces of that. Kelly, what about you? Tell us about your work, and what led you to this field, to this focus?
2: Um, it was uh a, a roundabout approach, primarily focusing initially on early child development and um, co-majoring in elementary education and clinical psychology. I was really interested in the development of children and, and families and, and how that happens in the context of different communities. And as I continued um, on with that work, I ended up working a good bit with youth in the juvenile justice system and also youth that were connected into um, teen health clinics. And through that work, I started to see this underlying unaddressed thread of adversity and trauma exposure in the early years that, when unaddressed, would often percolate up. And I would see this pattern of students and teens who would try to cope with the situations that they were dealing with. And depending on how they tried to cope, that determined what system they ended up in. Mm -hmm. So this person might cope by acting out behaviors that led them into juvenile justice, and this person Mm -hmm. coped by using substances, and this person, Mm -hmm. this student coped by cutting or self-injury behaviors. And so you would see the way that the students would show up would be different, but the underlying piece behind it was unaddressed exposure to trauma and adversity. And so that's really where I built my passion of really working in the trauma arena and understanding how do we prevent trauma? And then, how do we use the science of what works to intervene as early as possible, so that students and families do not have to experience complex issues that continue to snowball because of the experiences that they have had? Um, and so that's why we're focusing on that at the Kellen Foundation and really building our services and systems around what do children, families, and adults? Because we need healthy adults to have healthy children. What do they need to be safe and well? And how do we build that resilience um, to help them? maximize the potential that they already have inside um, and and not be weighed down by the things that might have happened to them in the past.
0: I can already tell we could do a whole series just on this topic with the two of you and, you know, maybe some of the folks you work with, but I'm going to dive into some questions. So I also want to make sure we're just on the same page because when we say trauma, what do we mean? What do I as a layperson mean? What do Mm -hmm. you all as practitioners, professionals, researchers mean? So an expert once shared with me, trauma is not an event, it's a person's response to an event, which is why one event can be traumatic to one person and less so or not so to another. So how do you all define trauma and how can we define it for the nature of the conversation today? How does it differ from everyday stress and you know, what's chronic trauma or intense trauma?
2: So I ascribe to the three E's definition of trauma, which is really thinking about trauma as an event or series of events that's experienced, experience being the second E, as as harmful or threatening that has lasting adverse effects on children and families. And so people can have, like you said, people can have experience of the same event, but how they experience that is a big predictor of whether they have those adverse effects or not. So for example, a concrete example is going on a roller coaster. The same event going on a roller coaster. Some people love going on a roller coaster. Some people experience that as harmful or threatening. And so whether or not they want to do that again depends on how they experience that event. So in that same way, you can have a similar event, but the way that a person experiences that event impacts what happens next in their life. And so for community service providers and helpers and teachers and community members, Obviously, we want to prevent the events, but that's really where we can make a big difference between the experience and helping them process that experience so that it doesn't have the lasting adverse effects. If any of us experience an event that's harmful or threatening, it's normal for us to have reactions and, you know, maybe disruptions in sleep and just to kind of be on edge for a little bit, right? But what really separates out the traumatic impact of that is how long-lasting those symptoms remain. And how that can build to other issues in a child's life if it's not addressed
0: quickly. So, I heard you say how we experience events and then the effects of that. Those are those three E's. Correct. Which is like mm-hmm. events, experience, and effects. That's really helpful for me.
1: For every person, there's this differentiated sort of response and experience.
0: How do those experiences layer on top of each other and create maybe a more complex or a more intense experience for the person?
2: Ex- With that trauma, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it's really important for our general population to know how prevalent trauma can be, especially among students. So there's different patterns of trauma, um, and so complex trauma is one pattern of trauma where you may be exposed to the same type of event multiple times over your lifetime. So, for example, exposure to a domestic violence incident where that happens pretty regularly, or bullying where it's happening pretty regularly. But one of the patterns that's actually the most common across the country is the pattern called polyvictimization, poly meaning many, mm. and the idea that most of the time students experience multiple different types of traumatic events simultaneously. And mm. so the research tells us, and this has been replicated over and over again, that about forty percent, four zero percent of students under the age of eighteen are poly victims in the past year. Meaning many types, and this is before COVID, many different types of trauma exposures. And so that means that your average eighth grade science class across town, four out of 10 kids in that classroom are trying to learn, but at the same time, poly victims and bringing into the classroom all of the things that they are trying to manage Mm -hmm. and cope with and, um, you know, struggling with while they're trying to learn. And so I think it's really important for our, our our general community and teachers and parents and faith communities to know that because oftentimes we see on the outside a kid that doesn't want to learn or a kid that's not putting in the work or a kid that's cut in class. And we see that, but we don't necessarily look past that to figure out what's happening in this child's life that's keeping them from being able to be successful. And I think when we make that mind shift as a community, we can move the needle in significant ways to help students succeed. I mean, I love that because if a child has a
0: broken leg and they've got a cast on or they have something else that's showing up physically, we can see it. Mm -hmm. And perhaps if we pay attention with our whole selves in a different way, you begin to see that someone's experiencing trauma. So how do you see that? You know, you're working with kids and with families. What have you learned to notice, to pay attention to, to sense and see?
1: Yeah, so I think most good educators would tell you that you want to have a relationship with the students and youth who you're working with. And building that relationship, you start to learn their norms, their sort of quirks that are just them, right? There are certain things that are a part of just who they are. It's like their personality. And so once you know that, then I think you're able to notice how they respond to things when things happen. As an educator, you're thinking of all the demands and we've got EOGs coming up or we've got this event, this symposium, this competition, whatever it is, you're so focused on the goal ahead uh you have to almost remind yourself what the main focus is every day so that you can pay attention to your students to be perceptive and so now you know that relationship you know how they normally are perceive what's going on there and it's so important and i think the way it shows up can be different for everyone you know if i have a student who's normally probably an extrovert and i see them being particularly quiet about something on a on a given day i may want to talk to them about that or if i see a student who's normally pretty easygoing and I say something to them, you know, like in the normal nature of, of instruction and, and they respond sort of in this way that's, that's not them, that's, you know, like they're rejecting or pushing back on that. I'm probably going to look and, and want to ask more questions.
0: Yeah, we had three principals in here the other day talking about students and outcomes and what shows up in buildings for students. All three said, you know, we talked about relationships and that you have to have people in time to build those relationships. And so the more counselors that they've had that can have real relationships with kids to understand what's happening was making a big difference in in outcomes. So it's interesting that you bring that up. We see that thread over and over again. I'm also wondering what do we need in schools in terms of training and in terms of time, Kelly, to respond appropriately as if we would if someone had a heart attack. In the hallway, and their heart stopped or they had an asthma attack,
2: what is it we need to be able to do to be responding proactively and reactively? I think one thing is what Sarah lifted up and the essential importance, which sometimes I think we skip over we being the community and and schools and everyone um skip over the essential importance of that building that relationship. We see the power of that having that foundational relationship in terms of the learning process in the treatment process in medical offices and compliance with juvenile justice counselors, like in almost every setting, we know, and the research tells us that if there's a foundational relationship, you can have the best curriculum, you can have the best evidence-based treatment, you can have all the best tools in your toolbox. But if you don't have that relationship on which to submerge and and merge those pieces, you're mm-hmm. not going to be but so successful. So I think part of it is building the awareness and understanding that the relationship building is a key piece. There's a saying that if hurting happens in relationships and healing happens in relationships too mm. and so I think especially coming out of covid I am hopeful that our um, our communities our schools really focus in on not only the learning that we might need to catch up on but really focusing in on processing the experience that these kids and families have had how have they been doing how are they you know like really checking in with them before we jump right into the the learning piece because I think that will be critical and spending some of that Time up front and reconnecting, I think, will in person because we've been doing virtual, but reconnecting in person will pay off hugely when we look at how do we help them continue to advance in the curriculum pieces with that foundational relationship piece in place.
0: You know, in this conversation, I'm and in the conversations we've had in the podcast, we've talked some about how we hold these uncomfortable truths out there, these things that seem conflicting but are both true, you know, which is in my mind with this um, trauma as I've seen it, goes across socioeconomic, racial age lines. And also, we have people and groups of people who are disproportionately impacted because poverty is concentrated. And in America, in the racialized structure in what we live, in that we live, we see this disproportionate impact on students of color, on black girls, on black boys. And we also see high anxiety among other groups of students, white girls, for example, suicide rates of white middle class and upper class boys. So all these things can seem conflicting or and I wanna I really want to talk about both. How it is both across all of those lines, and also what the particular experience is in this racialized structure that is America.
1: The fact that trauma is impartial, uh, is probably a good reason why you're hearing it talked about, I think, in the majority of uh, spaces where it probably needs to be talked about, right? Sometimes when an issue is sort of exclusive to a certain group, mm. maybe the other groups are like, well, that's not my thing. I don't really need to talk about that, right? Right. Uh, but mental health and trauma, and these are things that impact you regardless of where you are. You know, it's not any amount of money or any amount of privilege that can cover you when trauma comes to find you. Because it's not, you know, partial, because it's got this sort of universal, I think, reach and impact. I think we'll get the requisite resources behind people wanting to find out and learn more about it now, to the other part, the question where you talk about where there's the disparities as people start to devote the resources behind learning and hopefully implementing helpful practices to address the communities where there's historically been mm-hmm. uh, sort of this under service and uh disparagement, you wonder, will that continue in this particular topic, right? Will we take the time? because there's an intersectionality there, right? When we take the time to say trauma, racism, insert whatever Poverty. Right. Uh Identity and hardship, that makes it really tough. Are we going to take the time to say, well, we probably need to be equitable about the the trauma conversation and impact? While it's still got a universal impact, Uh we want to promote equity here and ensure that those people- While we say privilege and resources can't protect you from it in some way, at least having the privilege and resources are one thing you're not worried about. That box is checked. So we want to ensure that we're not making it where the trauma care is only going to those who can afford to get it uh, or those who go and seek it out. Because the ones who probably need it the most are the ones who don't even know that they're having the trauma.
2: If we are truly to call ourselves members of a community, community members, we need to be equally thinking about. Those that have access to care and also those who are experiencing these things that may not have access to care and what are the barriers and how do we proactively help to address those barriers? And so while trauma can be impartial, we know from the data that systemic racism and some of the ways that our systems work can create a setup for a higher likelihood of exposure to different traumatic events. For example, difficulty accessing quality child care poverty in and of itself, job loss, you know, all of these things can increase the likelihood of having multiple caregivers or maybe parental substance abuse trying to cope and all of these different snowball pieces that can happen when you start from different playing fields in terms of exposures and systemic issues that we have. And so while trauma is impartial, we know that communities of color in particular may be more likely to be the poly victims because of the different. Struggles and experiences. We also know that racism and discrimination in and of itself can be very traumatic, right? Right. And so we don't necessarily talk about that as much. We talk about trauma as domestic violence and sexual assault and gun violence exposure and things like that. But we know that racism and discrimination can be a traumatic event. Yeah. And I think this links in, you asked earlier about what trainings are needed. And so I think in addition to that, um, you know, I don't think we can ever have too much training and conversation. And I think we're at a point now you mentioned needing to have courageous conversations that make us all vulnerable to thinking about things in different ways, but about these issues of racial inequity and cultural variations to how students might respond to exposure to events. So it might be very helpful for teachers to understand how a first grader might respond versus an eighth grader versus a 12th grader. Even beyond that, how different cultures might express their stress. Right. So that we don't unintentionally miss warning signs because of just not being as aware. Um, and so I think that is a, a training opportunity set that helps us move the needle, not only in understanding and being more trauma-informed, but how do we make sure that we don't unintentionally contribute to students, particularly students of color, not getting access to the resources early because we didn't see those signs because they might look different than we expected. Um, so I think that's a training opportunity as well. Yeah, that that word
0: cultural variations, I love it when I hear a new term. I mean, we do have something like 110, 120 dialects and languages spoken in Guilford County schools.
1: When we talk about how trauma impacts the average student, think about the fact that in in our human bodies, it's very natural for us to utilize our fight, flight, or freeze response, right? And we need that response because if a fire breaks out. I don't want you to reason about right. uh, you know how big the flame is, and you know you want to just go. You want to go. You want to go do. Well, the thing is, is that for students who deal with these adverse childhood experiences and the way their brain maybe responds at home to maybe it's abuse or neglect or something of that nature. For example, they're being yelled at, and just all this abuse that comes with it. And in that moment, they respond by leaving what's considered to be that frontal lobe, which is like their reasoning part of their brain. And they go to the reptilian part of their brain, right? And they have what's called an amygdala hijack. In that moment, they're doing that because they're responding to the stress of the situation. Well, now, same student is sitting in, I don't know, math one or whatever it is. And maybe the teacher's yelling at them. Or maybe another student cusses them out. Whatever it is, puts them in the same mind of what happened at home where there was a real threat that sent them to that reptilian part of the brain. Well, now the perceived threat, your brain's still going to respond to that because that's how it was like literally programmed and designed to function. It's going to respond to a perceived threat. So now that student who's in that math class, they need to be reasoning. They need to be in that frontal lobe part of their brain. They can't do that now. They've literally been sent back to that reptilian part. And they say that it's like trying to learn whatever it is, math, while standing on a highway, cars going both ways, everyone's honking Mm. at you, rain's coming down. They say that's literally what it's like trying to get a kid to function when a perceived threat has hit them in the middle of learning.
0: That was so helpful. I mean, and how does that get distorted in your brain when it happens over and over again? Or in our bodies and other places? What what are we learning about that?
2: So your brain has pathways and I often use the analogy of a single road. A single lane road versus a five lane highway. And the more you use certain pathways, for example, the more you need to use fight, flight, freeze, the wider that pathway gets. Mm. And so when there's even a perceived threat, because you have a five lane highway in your brain that has been conditioned to respond, your default is that fight, flight, freeze response. Because your brain has been kind of changed to form and function in that way. And so the good news is, is that can shift back. We're continually growing and changing our brain pathways and brain structures so there can be healing that happens in the brain. But what we know is that the earlier we can intervene, the better um, to be able to kind of reverse some of those ways that the brain is forming. And there is research around our DNA changing. In particular, the DNA strands called the telemeters in our DNA strands are the pieces that shift in response to trauma. And the telemeters are responsible for the speed at which we age. And so what we know oh. is that trauma can increase our cortisol levels, our adrenaline levels, and wear out our bodies. And so the DNA strands, the telemeters, increase our body's wear and tear in because of the fact that we're in that fight-flight-freeze, that constant state of emergency. And so our bodies are not made to maintain that. And so we wear out a little bit quicker. And so the DNA strands that have been impacted have been shown to be the telemeters. The good news there is that what we know is there are some things that can actually... So the DNA strand looks like a, almost like a tattered shoestring at the end where you can kind of pull apart a tattered shoestring. The research tells us that there are some things that can be done to heal and almost repair the DNA strands. Wow. And those primarily have been stress reduction pieces like yoga, meditation, prayer, those things that help us to calm our nervous system and reset have been shown to literally change us at a biological DNA level. There is also evidence, if you're interested in hearing about this, that, yes. um, that markers for trauma exposure are carried in sperm. Um, right. I saw
0: some recent research about that. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the RNA strands in particular. Um, and so this is where we kind of get into those conversations about the multigenerational impacts of adversity and trauma exposure and what that means. Again, what we know is that those can be reversed and healed but we have to know that that can happen so that, you know, once we are equipped with the knowledge of what's happening, we have the ability to change it um, and to change the narrative and change the story. And so I think us b- becoming more aware of it's not just potentially an adversity that somebody's experiencing in the moment, but that it has impacts, potential impacts without intervention on future generations and the community really creates a call to action that all of us are really essential to preventing and intervening as quickly as possible so that um, we can kind of break that cycle.
1: So when we learned about CREM, we learned about the neuroplasticity, which is one of the things that were referenced by Dr. Graves here. Uh, Neuroplasticity is just a word that says your brain has the ability to change, evolve, to grow. And I think it's so important to elevate and highlight that point because one of the things that we often talk about with the professionals who we work with is that in order for you to be able to be the most effective in working with students who have experienced trauma, and really that's just to say in working with every student you come across, right, to be most effective, you have to be aware of the trauma. You also have to be aware of the fact that we can do something about it, and that's a big part of what we're leading. Because if you're not aware that something can be done about it, you'll have that sort of fixed mindset and sort of do that, I don't know, it's almost stereotypical. Sometimes we say that kid's got mental issues, right? And I think that is, uh, I don't know, forgive me, the most idiotic thing to ever say. Um, It's like saying that kid's, you know, if a kid walks in coughing and sneezing one day, oh, that kid's got physical issues. No, that kid, I mean, we know coughing and sneezing, they probably just got a common code. Mm -hmm. We don't look at mental health the same way. We most times just assume, well, that kid's going to have problems for a of their life. No. Something can be done to help that kid. Something should be done. We should intervene in a way. And we shouldn't just do it in the old traditional way, which is just to say you don't care about your future. Right. No, we should take some time to do some of the restorative things that Dr. Graves mentioned, which finds a way to get them in, as the Krim trainer talks about, back into their resiliency zone. So that when they're going high or when they're going too low, you're getting back in that zone, uh, which allows them to continue to function in that executive functioning part of their brain so that they can continue to process and continue to reason, because that's where the healthiest form of growth takes place.
0: What does a school culture look like? What does a school building look like? What's a school staff look like? What's the experience from a student and an educator look like in an environment where we're taking very seriously? how to respond to trauma in such a way that kids can have these positive life outcomes. And then we all win.
2: One of the things that I think is important is, is to help folks with that mind shift change of shifting from what's wrong with this kid to what has happened to this kid. So Mm. I still think the accountability needs to be in place. If, you know, if there's, if there's something that happens, children, you know, need to be held accountable, but the way that we do that can shift a little bit to, um, you know, having, you know, the accountability in place, but also, taking it one step further to say, how did this kid get here to this place? Because they're not thrilled that they're in this place right now. And so, and this is not the direction they want to go in. So how did this kid get here and how do we help create support so that they don't have to experience this again? Um, and, and I think that's the, the mind shift piece that um, we need to continue to get to. If we could build kind of have a magic wand and say, you know, schools across the country and across the world shift from what's wrong with this kid to what has happened to this kid and how do we help them get back on track, I think that is a huge first step to, to then taking action to, to um, support that child.
1: And then shifting that mindset is recognizing that there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm, right. I love that, um, our, our current superintendent for Griffith County Schools, Dada Contreras, is a huge champion for differentiation in your mm-hmm. approach to every student who you work with. You don't assume that 20 kids in the class, the way all of them learn should be the same. Matter of fact, it should be the same as when I learned, you know, 30 years ago and, and all that. It's differentiating. Um, so that you can maximize the opportunity that you have with the student. Because the way everyone's going to respond to different stimuli is so important. The way everyone responds to different events is so important because, again, our body's keeping that score and how we help them heal is also a part of how we help them learn. If we're not helping them heal, we're not helping them learn.
0: So well said. We typically end our podcast with just three rapid fire questions for every single guest. Maybe at the end of our series, we'll like splice them all together to hear everybody's answer. So we'd love to do that. I do feel like I could talk to you all for a whole series, so maybe we'll have you back. But to go ahead and end with our rapid fire, Kelly I'll
2: start with you. Favorite subject in school? I would say math was my favorite subject.
0: Favorite teacher.
2: So I don't remember her name, but she was my creative writing teacher in high school and she was my favorite because she connected in a different way you know, creative writing is is really learning and expressing yourself. And so I felt like she knew me, not just the student, but Kelly, like she knew who I was in some of the writing and uh, interacted with me in a more personal way. That's great. And complete the sentence, I believe education is important because... I believe education is important because there is an opportunity to allow kids and students to dream big and to develop the skills that they will need to be successful in whatever path that they choose. All right, Cyril, favorite subject in school?
1: Historically, it was math, but uh, I think at some point it became music or band class. So we'll go with that. Favorite teacher? Rick Reed. He was uh, my band director at Andrews, took us to Cotton Bowl and Sugar Bowl and all these places. He was uh, He was someone who said, we're at this inner city high school. No one's got money, but we're going to find a way. He would literally make bets with people and uh, win those bets. And uh, <laughs> that, would, that would literally fund some of our trips and, and, and excursions.
0: I so. love that. Okay, I believe education is important because?
1: I believe education is important because it's a vehicle. And it's really, I think, that dwelling place where a lot of resources and needs are met for students, or at least they should be met. And uh, as that a- a- atmosphere continues to become better in how it uh, addresses the needs of students, it will continue to make that student a better person.
0: Well, thank you. Y'all are tremendous. And we're so grateful to have you working in our community. So grateful for your advocacy for our students and our educators and just all the resources that you're dumping into them. Thank you so very much. Thanks for listening. And you can help us build great schools by sharing this podcast with others. Let's stay connected. G-E-A-N-C dot